God sees me as made in the image of God. One really big roadblock is just my identity in what culture sees it as. I'm a Christian because I'm doing everything wrong and I want to be pursuing Christ and to pursue what's right. I think just daily distractions, social media or friends or jobs or entertainment or whatever it might be. I see like all my shortcomings. I guess God in a sense doesn't, he knows it's there but he doesn't see that. Just living in a sinful world makes it kind of hard to view yourself in that light. I, I usually get in my own way when I'm trying to understand um, how God sees me because I try to do things myself or without relying on him. But lately, he's reminding me that he's in control and that I can get out of my own way because he's going to take care of it. One of the great American heroes that we remember this weekend is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who sacrificed his life because of his belief in the equality and freedom of all people, regardless of race, color, or creed. And one of the questions that comes to mind is why? Why did he make such a courageous decision to lead this movement and pay with his life? And he answers the question for us in one of his sermons entitled The American Dream. He says in that sermon, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected, an ability to have fellowship with God. And this gives him uniqueness, worth, and dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every person is made in the image of God. And so what drove him, what caused him to lead this movement and pay with his life was his conviction and belief that everybody has been made in the image of God. And that's why we're in this series called Identity, where we began by saying that if we're going to understand ourselves, we need to understand God. That God is, that God was not created, but he did create. And then last weekend we said we're unique in his creation because we have been created in the image of God. We're all imagers of God. We're all reflectors of God, so to speak. In every aspect of our life, we are reflectors of God. And we said that that reflection obviously has been marred by sin and evil in our lives. And we said this weekend we would ask the question, how did that happen? But last weekend we said, first we got to believe that we're creating the image of God. Otherwise, we're going to always struggle with identity. And in our culture today, identity is up for grabs in a way that's never been before. And so people are searching for the answer to the question, who am I? In so many other places, instead of seeing who they are precious in God's sight. Maybe one of the reasons why is because we do struggle with our image. We look at the mirror, we struggle, where is God in this? Or we look at other people and we say, well, where is God in them? And so the question becomes, where did it all go wrong? And that takes us back to the book of Genesis, if you want to turn there. Genesis 3 is where we will begin. Put it up on the screen as well. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? 
Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Evil made its way into the garden and made its way up to that first couple, our parents, Adam and Eve, and the seduction began. The question is, how? How did that seduction happen? And the reason I want to ask that question is because it continues to happen today. It's part of how we get seduced as well. And the answer to that question is found in a phrase, part of the question that the evil one asked, did God really say? Notice he moves past beyond any argument of whether God exists or not, because they're all very aware that, yes, God does exist. Instead, he asks a question because he's trying to, he's trying to change their attitude. He's trying to give them a bad attitude, a bad attitude towards God. And I hate to tell you this, but all of us are born with that bad attitude towards God. And you'll see what I mean by that in just a moment. Tim Keller, the theologian and pastor, as he deals with this passage around the area of identity as well, brings up some interesting thoughts that I want to just expand on. So credit goes to God for his word and then Tim Keller, and I'm just here to serve up the leftovers. But help us understand this with more insight and uh, application to our lives. In essence, what the enemy does when he says this is he mocks God. And that's how he tries to change our attitudes. He tries, to, he tries to get us to look down on God. He tries to get God in a place in our lives where we're now judging God rather than God judging us, so to speak. Let me give you an example of what I think is going on here. It's kind of a funny example, I hope. All right, but let's imagine that Pastor Cal, our campus pastor here in Prairie, our executive pastor, made a rule no coughing in the worship center. Now, psychologically, some of you want to cough right now. That's okay. <clears throat> Get it out of you, all right? But let's say he made that rule. And I walk in and I go, did Cal Robinson actually say you can't cough in the worship center? I'm not asking a question. I'm making a statement. The statement I'm making is that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. Can you imagine someone saying you can't cough in the worship center? It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. When the enemy says, did God really say you can't eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden? He's just saying, look at God. He's ridiculous. And what he's trying to do, he's trying to flip an equation here. He's trying to change your attitude and to begin to view God differently. Because in the beginning, the way it was supposed to work is God on the top and humans on the bottom, meaning that we take our cues from God. Meaning that we're to filter everything in the environment through what God has said to us, through the eyes of God, through the Word of God. And what he's trying to do, he's trying to change this. He's trying to say, no, put yourself on top and you judge God. 
Run God through your filter. Run God through the filter of the culture to see if God makes sense, to see what fits in and what doesn't fit in. And, you know, this is a huge challenge for us. We may not realize it, but we are always waffling between these two things because I don't know about you, but there are some times that I think I know better than God. I wouldn't necessarily say that, but my behavior, my prayers, and my actions would betray that. Am I alone in that? Thank you. One other person besides me, all right? This message is just for you and me of that voice, all right? Questions like, is God really good? What does that cause you to do? The minute I ask that, I say, is God really good? You have to make a judgment about God, don't you? See, in the beginning, there was no judgment about God. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. I think it's okay to ask certain questions like, is God good? And explore that. But it's how you ask it, right? It's the attitude with which you ask it. Or is God fair? Or is God just? Or how could a good God let, you know, these kinds of things happen? All those kind of questions provide the opportunity to mock God, to judge God, to put God under the microscope, so to speak. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to ask questions. I think it's important to ask questions. It's the attitude, though, by which you ask those questions and he tries to get us to ask the questions in negative ways. So what is it that he does to influence us that way? Keller says it's the atmosphere around us. I call it the environment. He uses the environment around us. And I talked about that last weekend. I said that all of us are being shaped by forces outside of us. Peers, parents, professors, coaches, and all of the media that's just blaring in our ears and and glaring in our eyes, it seems like 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All of those people, all of those things, all of those uh, philosophies are feeding things into our soul and trying to shape us in a worldly way. Now, there might be different tribes shaping us differently, but it's in a worldly way, and the Bible tells us that Satan is the God of this world. <clears throat> so the way it's trying to shape me is not in a Godward type, uh, it's not in a Godward way. It's in a God-less way, trying to move me away from God rather than to God. Let me, let me just throw out some more questions for you to give you an idea of, of how, the, how the culture does this, how Satan does this through the culture is probably how I should say it. For instance, do you really believe that the Bible, uh, excuse me, do you really believe what the Bible teaches about sexuality? Do you really believe that? I got to step back now with that question. I got to think about that. Or do you really believe that there is a hell that people are going to be damned to and suffer for eternity? You really believe that? Or do you really believe that God is good when he allows good people to suffer in terrible ways? Or do you believe that uh, there's only one way to heaven? You really believe that? Now, it's one thing to ask the question innocently. It's another way to frame the question or talk about it in a way that's really meant to shape you in a different direction. There's no hell. That's mythical. It's funny, though. We all want to believe in heaven. <laughs> that if it feels good, do it. It's this whole thing about sexuality. 
And, and on and on it goes. And, and so all those questions are meant to get us to start to judge God, but then to shape us toward a certain worldview or toward a certain philosophy of life. And as a believer stuck in the middle of all this, and even if you're not a believer, the problem is that you don't want to, you don't want to not fit. Because we all want to be accepted. We all want to be liked. We all want to fit in. And so you got to do something. You either have to go live in a closet and pretend, you know, be very silent about your face and nobody quite knows where you are, which is really hard to do these days, or you got to accommodate. And in order to accommodate, that means you're going to have to make some changes. You're going to have to give up. You're going to have to progress. And so there's kind of a movement out there these days amongst so-called Christians called progressive Christianity. In fact, there's a, a movement out there called the Evolving Faith Conference. And it's all about the kinds of things that maybe we as Christians need to change. The Bible needs to change. God is changing. God isn't stable necessarily. And we got to kind of read, you know, the tea leaves. We got to figure out what's, what's God doing in these progressive ways. In fact, I came across an article from the Gospel Coalition. And uh, it was entitled, let me find it here, Three Beliefs Some Progressive Christians and Atheists Share. That was interesting. It's like, how do... How do Christians and atheists share in, in certain beliefs? It didn't say all progressive Christians, but some. It's written by Alyssa Childers, who's a, an artist, a songwriter, and also an apologist defending the faith. And here's what she said. He said she said, here are three areas. Number one, she says, the belief that the Bible is unreliable. There's a, there's a movement amongst so-called progressive Christians, some progressive Christians, that say, well, the Bible's not entirely reliable. It's a document written way back when for a period of time back then, and it meant something then, but it doesn't mean the same thing now. We have evolved. We have changed. Therefore, Scripture needs to catch up, which really means God needs to catch up. Secondly, unresolved answers to the problem of evil. Why does evil exist? Where did evil come from? Because we can't answer those questions. Maybe God isn't ultimately in control. Maybe there are some things God does not know. And thirdly, affirmation of a cultural adaptation of morality. That is, we need to adopt, adapt and adopt certain views that evolve and change as we get smarter, more intellectual, and, and, and grow into our human freedom, etc. There's a second way that the enemy uses to shape us, and that is, and I never thought about this before, humor. Humor. Now, when I say humor, we can have a long conversation about that, especially if I ask you, what's the difference between good humor and bad humor? And my point isn't to do that except in one area. Good humor, besides the fact that it's, that it's clean, all right, good humor is when we all are able to laugh at ourselves together. That's good humor. Bad humor is when you're the butt of the joke. I laugh, you don't. I'm making fun of you with my joke. Nobody likes to be made fun of. Nobody. We do it all the time, right? Sarcasm is part of that. Doesn't mean it's right. But nobody likes to be made fun of. When, when you're being made fun of, you either want to crawl in a hole or retaliate in like manner, right? Or join the ranks so that now you're the one joining them, telling the jokes and making fun of another person or a group or whatever it might, might turn out to be. You mean you're still a virgin? Hey, guys, come over here. <laughs> still a virgin. Don't invite Mary to the party. She's one of those Christians. She'll ruin everything. Nobody likes to be made fun of, belittled. I remember when I was working for an ambulance firm as an EMT before going into the ministry. 
If I wanted somebody to rescue my life, I would have called those guys. They were good. We didn't have any women on the force at that time, all guys, and they were good at what they did. But they were the most hedonistic group of people I've ever been around. I mean, affairs and prostitution and, you know, stealing. And it was just, whoa, it was a difficult place to be. And I'd have to sleep overnight on my shift. And, and I, you know, I just got married. It's like, oh, I want to behave. I want to honor God. I want to honor my wife. I'm not going to participate. I'm going to keep clean. And they noticed that I didn't do a lot of things that they were doing. And pretty soon they started calling me the preacher. Hey, preacher, what do you think about that? Here comes the preacher. I got saddled. I got the preacher for my partner this month. I didn't really feel very good. I didn't want to be known as a preacher. I didn't want to be made fun of because I didn't do those things. We all want to fit in. We all want to be accepted. So humor is one of the ways that the enemy kind of works to, to get under our skin and to get at us. And that's why the church is so important. Because church ought to be that one place that is so safe in our culture, right? People talk about safe places. Church ought to be a safe place. It ought to be a place where we come and we feel loved and we feel accepted. And we're never made fun of. We're never put down. We're always lifted up. Man, that's where people want to go. To groups, to big groups, to worship services like that. You know, it depends on each of us treating each other that way. Even if we're on opposite sides of the issue, I don't have to agree with you. It may be a moral issue, and I may be on this side, and you may be on that side. You may not even be a believer yet. We can agree to disagree, but I still need to love you, respect you, and defend you if others attack you. See, that's what people are looking for. They're looking for that place to belong, a little bit of heaven on earth, and you don't have to compromise the truth to do it. But we've been polarized into this crazy thinking that if you don't agree with me, I have the right to hate you, mock you, put you down, and ridicule you. I don't. I don't. You can still disagree, you can still hold the truth, and you can still do it in a loving and gracious way. Not easy to do, but it's what God calls us to do. So that then takes us to another phrase. You won't die. Did God really say, oh, I can't trust God? Attack on God's goodness. You won't die, which is basically a bold lie. Satan is the father of lies. Been that way ever since, right? He is a liar at his heart, and he's a good liar. Have you ever met a good liar? That doesn't sound quite right, does it? You ever met a good bad liar? A bad good liar? Think about that. I've met some people like that, look you straight in the eyes, not even blink, tell you a bold lie, and it's believable. Because their whole posture caters to that sense as believable. Ever been fooled by one of those? Ever told one of those? Remember when you were a teenager? Anyway, I confess I have. Satan is a liar. And when he tells this lie, what is he doing? He's calling into question God's goodness. Calling into question God's goodness. You can't trust God. He's holding back something from you. He's restricting you. And none of us likes to be restricted. We love our freedom. We're Americans. Freedom. Don't restrict me. How many of you as parents have ever heard your son or daughter say, you're mean? Now watch this, all the youth in this service. How many of you parents, when you were kids living at home, ever said to your parents, you're mean? Of course you did. Stop pretending you didn't. At least you thought it. 
are. You're the meanest parent ever. What's that all about? You're restricting me. That makes you mean. Boy, God is mean sometimes, isn't he? <laughs> or this one, and sometimes spouses use this one. If you really love me, you would. Right? The sign of your love, you would. Don't restrict me. You would give me this freedom. And we all, we all struggle with that. And the enemy's playing on, on that. God's restricting you. God's holding back this freedom from you. So what are the kinds of things that we ask or say that indicate that we feel restricted by God? I mean, what's wrong with having sex outside of marriage? What's the problem with that? If it feels good, do it. Why is God so restrictive about that? He gave me this body and these hormones anyway. Why can't I use in the way I want, with who I want, when I want, where I want? Boy, God is mean. What do you mean I have to forgive? I got a right to hold this grudge. Can't believe what he or she said or did to me. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna let go of this until they come and beg for forgiveness, and I may not give it to them. But I love to gossip. I mean, not me personally. Well, I kind of do, but. Are you guys, you guys are stiff this morning. You there with me? All right? Nessie just has you in thrall, right? Yep. Right? <laughs> or um, why is it wrong to lust? As long as you don't touch, it's okay to look. Why is God so picky about that? He created the female body. What's wrong with cheating on my taxes? The government cheats me all the time. Getting about that time of year, isn't it? And on and on the list goes, right? We just... You know, the enemy has a way of, of causing us to look at what God doesn't let us do. When we ought to be thinking about is what God does let us do. And when God restricts us, it is not because God is a meanie, because he's trying to make life hard on us. And I know sin can be wonderful for a season of time, but if you play it all the way out, it's bad news. Look at our world today. We live in a sinful world. Don't tell me it's good news. It's bad news what's going on, what we do to each other and say about each other. What we do to ourselves when we don't listen to God's plan and what, what God says he wants us to do and how he wants us to live. That moves us on to another thought, passage of scripture here. It says, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Now, I didn't want the women to feel like we're picking on them. Notice at the end it says, and he ate it too. Adam was standing right there. And in fact, Adam's the, really the, the naughty guy. Because Adam had received the prohibition, he should have said to his wife, don't do that. Let's not do that. Let's not go down that path. Remember what the Creator said. So this idea of mocking God, of we can't trust God's goodness, leads then to this reckless decision. And we have all been affected by this reckless decision in our own lives. We're all dealing with the consequences of it now. You ever wonder to yourself why... God allowed this to happen in the first place? I mean, like, why didn't God stop them right before they were about ready to grab that fruit? Stop! Stop! Whoa! Time out! Adam, Eve, don't do this. You will regret it. You're going to die. I know you haven't died yet. You know what death is, but it means you won't exist the way you do right now. And your children are going to suffer and be miserable. Hardship. Oh my goodness, it's just going to be horrible for your family. Don't do it. 
You ever wonder why, why, why didn't God say stop? Well, God had already said stop. But why did he say stop again? Lots of theologians debate these kinds of things. Again, Tim Keller, I think, comes up with the best explanations. He said, because God didn't want a relationship based on cost-benefit analysis. In other words, God doesn't want a relationship based on, well, that's going to hurt too much, so I guess I'll follow you. It's kind of like your kids, right? I mean, when, they, when you kind of lay down the law and they do cost-benefit analysis and finally they go, all right, whatever you want. Well, that doesn't feel real loving, does it? Or your wife says that, or your husband says that, or your friends say that, or your coworkers say that. We want people to really like us. We want them to enjoy us. Cost-benefit analysis. Can you imagine Adam and Eve trying to figure the whole thing out? Adam says, I don't know, Eve. I, uh, I think the fruit's pretty good looking too, and I really like the concept that we could be our own God, but this death thing, man, it's got me worried. Yeah, I know what you mean, Adam. I've been thinking about that too, but I got to tell you, the serpent seems like a really nice guy. I mean, he seems generally concerned about us. And I mean, he's told us some things we wouldn't have known otherwise. God's been keeping secrets from us. And, you know, maybe God's jealous we'll be like him. You know what I mean? Maybe that's what that's all about. Yeah, I hear you, Eve. And I kind of think you might be right, but I got to be honest with you, I'm just really uncomfortable with this thing. I think we better play it safe. You know, Adam, I just wish that once you would man up for a change. Okay, I just made all that up, all right? All right, just made it up, just made it up. But you get the point, right? God didn't want that kind of relationship. Oh, I guess I have to love you. I guess I have to serve you. God gave them the gift of life. He gave them creation to enjoy and to partner with him in caring for, and he gave them life in here. Nobody else was created in his image, only they were. And God wanted a relationship where they would trust him and trust his goodness and trust that he had their best in mind. I mean, think about this. Why else would God have done all that he did if he didn't have their best in mind, if he didn't love them, if he didn't care for them? And the same thing's true for you and me. See, God loves you too, and God cares about you too. And God does have his best in mind for you, even in this sinful world, even in your and my sinful condition, God still has a plan for us. He still loves us. He still genuinely can genuinely cares for us, for you. And right now, it's a hard time to be alive right now in the sinful world. It's always been a hard time to be alive in a sinful world. But I'm telling you what, God has a purpose. He has a plan for you. Which takes us to the last thought, and that is, we are hiders, but God is a seeker. <clears throat> Look what it says in verse 9 and 10. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. And I was afraid because I was naked. So man makes his bad decision. The man and the woman, they go run and they hide. Hide because of guilt and shame. Not just physical nakedness, but emotional and spiritual nakedness too. Psychological nakedness. And God comes seeking. Did God not know where they were? Of course God knew where they were. He knew what they had done. But God gives them an opportunity to come out. And be honest. But what do they do? They come out and what do they do? It's his fault. It's her fault. It's the snake's fault. God, it's your fault. Sin is born in the heart. We all know we're sinners. We all know we came from the same parents. Why? Because we all do the same thing. We all blame somebody else for what's wrong in our life. Hard for us to own it, isn't it? But that's where healing begins. And God gives them an opportunity. And they blow it. 
But God, because he's a loving God, still does not turn away from them, but says to them, read Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 onward. God says to them, I'm going to send one. One of your descendants, Eve, you're going to give birth. You're one of your children are going to give birth to the Messiah. He's going to crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of evil, though it'll strike his heel. And he's going to win. Because I'm coming for you. You know, sometimes that phrase, I'm coming for you, is not a good thing. You know, when you're playing football and somebody on the defense, some big guy says, I'm coming for you. That's not a good thing. When God says, I'm coming for you, it's I'm coming for you to rescue you. I'm coming for you to restore you. I'm coming for, for you to heal you. And he came personally in his son, Jesus. Think about this. You go back to Genesis chapter 1. You're in the garden, right? And they're at this beautiful tree. And there's this fruit that God has said, don't take it. Trust me instead. You don't want to deal with the knowledge of good and evil. Only I can know good and evil and only and always be good. You can't. I want you to trust me. I want a loving relationship where you trust me. Adam and Eve took what didn't belong to them. They lusted after it. And suddenly they were filled with, yes, good, but also evil. And evil took, overtook their lives. And we know that battle in our own hearts as well. But what's amazing is you get the New Testament and there's another tree. It's not a beautiful tree. It's an ugly tree. It's called a cross. But on that cross, on that tree, what does God do? He takes our sins away from us. He takes our guilt and our judgment he pays the ultimate price for us. He absorbs it on himself and then reaches down and, and hands us the fruit of mercy and grace and forgiveness. Isn't it interesting how when we're tempted by something that's wrong, how we just so want to take it? Why? Why do we want to take it? Whatever it is, he is, she is, it is. Why is that? Why do I want that chocolate cake? Because I'm convinced if I get it, if I eat it, I'm going to love it. I'm going to feel good. I'm going to be happy. But we walk by the cross and, eh, whatever. And God says, but which fruit is going to bear eternal dividends? Which fruit is going to really ultimately fulfill your life? Mercy and grace and forgiveness and joy. I can I ask you a question? Which tree are you at today? Which tree are you grabbing the fruit from? Maybe you're facing temptation of some sort. Maybe you're, you're thinking about accommodating. Maybe you're thinking about joining the other side, so to speak. Maybe you're thinking about evolving God's word. What is that thing that you think that if you just had it would fulfill your life? Well, how do you wish God would change? I just want to challenge you to, if you need to, to repent of it or to make your commitment this weekend and say, God, I, I just want to trust you. I want to find my identity in you, not in things, not in relationships, not in sex, not in materialism. I just want to find my identity in you.